You're in the water loop. Welcome to Waterloop, the podcast helping water leaders to discover solutions and drive change. I'm the host, Travis Loop. During the last century, large engineering projects were used to control water resources. But in many ways, that man-made infrastructure is failing to meet the challenges in the 21st century, such as drought, flooding, pollution, and population growth. How can a pivot back to nature provide more sustainable solutions for water management? The nature-based approach is discussed in this episode with Sandra Postel, the author of Replenish and the director of the Global Water Policy Project. Sandra discusses a variety of examples from across the U.S. of the benefits of nature-based solutions, including restoring the flow of rivers, putting watersheds to work, providing room for floods, and bringing down the dams. Now to the conversation. Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. Uh, Sandra, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You are somebody that has been on my uh, guest wish list for a while. Um, you know, I've, I've had your book, Replenish, uh, and I finally just got around to connecting with you. So very glad to have you on. Well, Travis, it's a pleasure to be here, and thank you so much for inviting me onto the show. A lot of different things to talk about here, but uh, curious about the title of your book, Replenish. Why did, why did you name your book that? Well, I would say the title um, signals that it's really critical for society to reverse the depletion of our rivers and our, our wetlands and aquifers if we want to have you know, a prosperous future. Uh, we really can't have a prosperous future without that. So, you know, when we look around the world, we see, you know, many major rivers no longer reaching the sea, the Nile, the Colorado, the Yellow, the Murray, to name just a few. Um, in many places, of course, we see groundwater being depleted to meet, you know, current demands. So if you look at the top four irrigators around the world, China, India, the U.S., and uh, Pakistan, Groundwater is being depleted in the most critical food producing regions. So at least 10% of our global food supplies today depend on the overpumping of groundwater. And that's an unsustainable situation and a major threat to food security and, and rural livelihoods. So I would you know, just say that the water cycle, I think it's easy to forget this sometimes, that the water cycle is really Earth's greatest gift. It is the basis of life. So replenish is really about how we can repair and replenish the water cycle through solutions, and this is very, very important, through solutions that are already working somewhere in the world on the ground. Hmm. So it's about recognizing what's working and, and scaling those solutions. Yeah, well, that's uh, a great reason that I, I wanted to have you on this podcast is because you're very solution focused, uh, and and the book is super solution focused too. You you outline the problems and challenges, but then you're like, hey, this is happening someplace. There's a there's a solution for this. There's a way to make progress. There's a success story. So that's that's good stuff. Um, 
I want to kind of get at maybe the the key factor or the the common factor in how to go about replenishing and rejuvenating you know water out there, uh, and I think that it runs throughout your book and, and throughout your work. You really get at this idea of like changing the approach from one that's heavy on gray infrastructure and engineering and controlling water to one that's more uh, nature based and. And green, uh, and and taking the lessons that are out there in the in the natural water cycle, uh, is that is that uh, valid? Uh, how would you and how would you kind of talk about that and describe that? Yeah, I think you put that pretty well, and I appreciate that. Um, you know, I would say really throughout the twentieth century and even much of the nineteenth century, uh, the focus was with our water management was very very much on large-scale water engineering, uh, dams to store water, canals to move it around, levees to keep floods in check. Um, worldwide, we now have on the order of 60,000 large dams. We have enough canals and pipelines to transfer something like 10 Colorado rivers worth of water to cities each year. Wow. So in many ways, you know, it's I find it in many ways hard to imagine our world of 8 billion people and $85 trillion in goods, global goods and services without this water engineering, right? It's given enormous benefits. But I think what we've come to see is that, you know, this infrastructure involves a kind of Faustian bargain. Um, while it has brought much of the world a lot of prosperity it has also broken that water cycle. You know, rivers no longer flow like rivers. The majority of wetlands and floodplains are, are gone. And water use exceeds sustainable limits in many, many areas. So really what we learn is that more of the same is not likely to help us. You know, I go back to what Einstein reminded us of several decades ago, decades ago, not several, many <laughs> decades ago, that we can't solve problems using the same kind of thinking that created the problems, right? We need a new way of thinking. And so I think with water management, that pivot that we need uh, is really to work more with natural systems rather than against them, rather than continuing to try to bend water to our will. Um, and, that, and that's a challenge for us. It's a change in mindset. But I think the good news is that these approaches can help us solve our three big existential challenges, crises, if you will, at the same time. And that's our water risks dilemma, climate change, and the loss of biodiversity. Now, these are the three big existential challenges. They're all interrelated, and water is fundamental to solving all of them. And so I think it's very important that we move towards solutions that solve for these three challenges simultaneously, because we just don't have time, you know, to solve them in a piecemeal fashion. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things, uh, you know, in your book and, and following your work is you've been able to travel around the world to a lot of different places and see these challenges and solutions firsthand. I'm very jealous. <laughs> incredible, <laughs> incredible adventures. Um, what's what's that been like? How has that informed your perspective? And, um, you know, being able to go in, to China or to Australia and see 
the challenges, but also the different kind of nature-based solutions or, or paths that are there? What's what's that been like? You know, it has been uh, a wonderful aspect of my work. Um, you know, I've I've had the you know the 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 privilege really of of seeing a lot of water uh, solutions in and challenges in you know, in real places, in real time. And, and what it also, I think, taught me is just how important culture is mm. to water, that we manage water differently depending on our culture um, and our perspective on water. And I think that really hits home to me when I go to the lowest plateau in China, for example, and see how people relate to the land and water there. Um, when I go to northwestern India and see the sort of crop production systems in that sort of uh, lower Himalayan sort of landscape. Um, in Australia, a very, you know, sort of precious river system, the Murray-Darling and the threats that are going on there. And of course, throughout the United States. So um, it has been a learning, a steep learning curve for me, but one that really, I think, gave me a perspective on the importance of water and ethics and culture and values, you know, and how they, how they differ uh, from one place to another. And yet what's in common? Water is life. We all need water. Um, mm. and, and, and all living things do. So I think the, the common ground comes out as well. I, you know, uh, and I imagine that there's a lot that water managers in the United States could learn from some of these solutions and cultural values and so forth in these other parts of the world, maybe where they, they haven't traveled or haven't learned from, right? A lot, of, a lot of value out there. I think there is. You know, I think we tend to look for solutions close to home because mm. they fit our way of thinking about things. But what I have tried to do in my, in my water research and my water books is is really to help us learn from other cultures and learn from other uh, places, uh, whether we're in the United States or elsewhere. I think we there's a lot to learn from what's been tried, what's worked, why it's worked, how we can adapt those solutions to our to our own situation. So I, I hope that's come through in in my work. Yeah, uh, one of the fields that's developed over the past couple decades, I guess, is this this uh, ecosystem services, right? And and kind of the economics around ecosystem services. Uh, what what does that mean? <laughs> what are what are ecosystem services? What's the economics of it? And why has that been, I think, key for supporting nature based solutions? Yeah, I, I have to admit that I struggle a little bit with the term hmm. ecosystem services because it sounds like, you know, nature is there for us, right? Hmm. I mean, it is serving us. Um, so I struggle a little bit with the term, but, but, but the basic idea is that nature in the way it functions is providing a whole host of benefits um, to our human societies, to the rest of life on Earth. And we often, you know, it's almost like the air we breathe, we don't really recognize it because it's all around us. Um, and so I think what we have come to understand is the importance of, of recognizing what those benefits are, what, we're, um, what kind of gifts nature is regularly providing to us, and where we need to make decisions about land use, about water management, what the value of those ecosystems are to us in that in that framework. So I think that's really, really critical. And again, it's not just about services to the human economy, 
but what natural functions are protecting the whole web of life of which we're a part. Mm. And so again, thinking back over the last, you know, two centuries or so, we've essentially been trading nature's work for engineering works, right? We, we instead of uh, relying on floodplains, natural floodplains to control floods, we built dams and levees to do that work. Um, instead of healthy watersheds and wetlands cleansing our water, we built filtration plants to provide that service, right? Um, and I think for the most part, we viewed this substitution of technology for nature as a sign of progress. It gave us more control over water. It opened up new lands and new opportunities for development. It generated economic growth. But I think over time, what we're seeing, and this is again, part of this pivot we were talking about, hmm. is that the trade-off has changed dramatically in the last couple decades, in part because we're hitting limits in various ways, in part because of climate change, um, and, and in part because we, we are seeing that we're losing tremendous value as we fail to protect these natural functions. You know, researchers, Robert Costanza is a real pioneer in this field of e ecological economics. Um, he and his team have uh, made a number of different estimates on the value to the global economy, to, the, to various economies of, of these natural ecosystem services, including fresh water. And he estimated, I'm going to get this number right, I hope, that <laughs> uh, freshwater swamps and river floodplains and their ability to store water and mitigate floods and break down pollutants um, delivers annual benefits to, the, to our economy at average on the order of $13,000 per acre. Wow. Well, if we were you know, trying to figure out what to do with a parcel of land and we don't take that value into account and we decide to put up a shopping mall and drain the swamp, well, is that a smart decision? And increasingly, the answer is likely no if we're trading a highly functioning wetland system for something else, right? Because there are so few highly functioning wetland systems left. So I think these, you know, these trade-offs are becoming more and more favorable to protection of natural systems than, than uh, technological solutions or development type solutions. Um, and again, just to repeat that these these wetlands, uh, river systems, floodplain systems, these healthy freshwater ecosystems are helping us to protect the climate, helping us to protect and adapt our water systems, and helping to preserve biodiversity. So in some sense, these nature-based solutions are the best bet, in my view, for saving planetary life and, and human society. Hmm. So I... Yeah, we've come a long way in understanding that, but I think that's kind of where we are. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to uh, take a little time now and kind of go through some of the chapters in your book um, and really talk about the kind of the solution that you see in, in each of these areas. And if you have an example from, from the real world <laughs> that illustrates them, that's, that's great. Um, okay. You know, you, you've got, I don't know, nine, 10 different chapters in here that go through, through different areas. Um, so maybe I'll name one. You can kind of say what that chapter is about, what the solution is and, and something out there. Back okay. to life, back to life. Yeah, that was a, one of my favorite chapters, although huh? it's hard to pick a favorite. But so Back to Life is early in the book, and it's really the story of the Colorado River Delta. 
Um, most of us know that the damming and diverting of the Colorado River as it flows through the Western United States pretty much left the Colorado Delta high and dry for decades. Um, Meaning, you know, like the people, the river doesn't even reach the sea, right? It's a, it's a sad, yes. it's, a, it's a sad story. A river that does not get to its ultimate destination of, of the ocean. Right. I've sometimes said if a river has a destiny, it's to reach the sea, right? Mm. And and in the Colorado is one of those rivers that no longer does, for the most part. And it, you know, the Delta was once a two million acre, beautiful, lush wetland, very important for migratory birds on the Pacific Flyway, just an incredible place for birds and wildlife. But because of the, the many, many uh, years of damming and diverting of, of the river, um, it pretty much became a desiccated landscape. And most scientists, most conservationists sort of gave it up for dead. Most of us know that story. What I think many of us may not know is that parts of the Delta are coming back to life through what I consider a very remarkable uh, collaboration between scientists and conservationists on both sides of the border and an agreement between the US and Mexico to give some water back to the Delta. This took many years of hard work by the conservation community and the scientific community. Um, It took really remarkable you know coordination and collaboration and cooperation between the two countries Mm. but it's it's a great story and um it was one of the highlights of my professional life to actually be in the delta on this sunday morning in march 2014 when the gates of the last dam on the colorado river the morellis dam were raised and a and a pulse of water came through the delta and this was the idea was to try to mimic the natural spring snowmelt pulse that naturally happened every year before the dams were built. And then it was really a scientific experiment to see where would the water go? What would it do? Would life come back? And a small volume um, of water even reached the sea during that pulse flow. It took about eight weeks. But the fact is water did produce life again in the Delta. Copepods, insects, fish, birds, all began to come back as the water returned. The community, the Delta community of San Luis Rio, Colorado, which had, the kids had never even seen the river that had given their town its name. They came out to welcome the river home. It was an incredible experience to witness. And the first five years of that sort of experiment showed what the benefits of restoring the Delta could be. And the U.S. and Mexico signed another agreement uh, to continue that restoration. Um, and, and again, remember, this is during the time what we now know is happening in the southwestern United States is the most severe drought we've had in 1,200 years. So it's remarkable to me that we could be doing this kind of restoration with such, in such a time of drought and, and water shortage. Just a few months ago, again, during this continued restoration, once again, a smaller volume of water ran through the Delta and, and reached the sea. In the Delta itself, which of course is in Northwest Mexico, uh, water that was once used for crop irrigation is now helping to nourish native trees that are being planted and, and, and native plants that are being planted by conservationists and scientists. 
Um, scientists are studying the return of birds to new habitats. So this is expensive restoration, right? And there's no, I would say there's no guarantee it will continue as water becomes ever more scarce in the Colorado River Basin. But for now, life is returning to an ecosystem once considered hopelessly dead. And so I think for me, the take-home message from this story was that it underscores that nature is resilient. It's ready to bounce back if, and I realize this is a big if in many cases, if we give it space and we give it water. It's mm. a great story. It's one worth tracking if you're interested in this. And I find it, it gives me a lot of hope. Yeah. Just that little bit of water, right? It doesn't need the full the full flow again. Geez, just give it a little bit and an, and an incredible rejuvenation. A, you're absolutely right. It's a very little bit of water. I mean, the first pulse flow and uh, restoration water in that first five-year agreement, considerably less than 1% of the river's annual flow. Hmm. Yeah. So a very small amount of water. And again, we're not talking about restoring a large portion of the delta. We're talking about, you know, pieces of, of, of habitat that are largely being, you know, sort of recreated with deliveries of water, right? Hmm. Planting of native trees, cottonwood, willow, and so on, sending water to these habitats and bringing back, you know, habitats for the native birds and so on. And, hmm. and so it's, we're talking about a very small percentage of that 2 million acres of natural wetland that is being brought back to life, but it's important. Waterloo. This episode of Waterloop is sponsored by Varuna, the decision intelligence tool for water systems. The factors that go into running water systems are more dynamic than ever, but the tools for making decisions are still static. That's why Varuna built a resilience tool that uncovers blind spots, identifies risks, and generates insights, which are all presented in a user-friendly dashboard. There are many risks that water systems have to mitigate, while EPA identifies 10 vectors of risks that water utilities should track, the Varuna Resilience Tool captures 26, including internal and external risks. The tool allows operators to take immediate actions and leaders to make long-term strategic decisions, and is especially helpful for, for smaller systems. With Varuna, better data means better decisions. Learn more at varuna.city and let them know you heard about it on Waterloop. Waterloop. All right, another chapter. Uh, this one is titled, Put Watersheds to Work. Talk about that. Yeah, this, um, you know, I think of watersheds as kind of nature's water factories. Hmm. If you think about what a watershed does, it's producing water, it's cleansing water, it's storing water, if it's functioning well, it's doing all those things. So it's, it's sort of like a water factory, but it's only going to do those things if we keep the watershed healthy, right? And, and in most cases, we simply have not protected enough of the watersheds to do all of that work well. But one, I have a few examples in my book that, are, that were fun to learn about and interesting to write about. And one that sort of st stood out to me is, is New York City. And I'm sure many uh, folks listening may know this story, but, you know, it's the, the New York City gets 90% uh, of its water from the Catskills, Delaware watershed um, in the upstate area of, of New York. And 
Um, 10% comes from, from the Croton, but we're talking about the Catskills, Delaware watershed. And in, um, 1997, New York City opted to invest in watershed protection rather than building a water filtration plant. Um, I'm sure many of you know that U.S. drinking water rules say that any city that relies on surface water for its drinking water supply must build a filtration plant unless you can demonstrate, unless the city can demonstrate that good watershed protection is sufficient to meet the drinking water standards. And that's looked at every five years or so. So New York City decided to do the watershed investment and very complex undertaking, a lot of different partnerships and collaborations involved, not, not easy. But the upshot has been that an investment of $1.7 billion in watershed protection has allowed New York City to avoid the need to build a $10 billion filtration plant, which would also cost probably several hundred millions of dollars a year to operate. Well, that's so that, that's that uh, what, uh, ounce of prevention is worth more than a pound of cure or whatever the phrase is, right? I mean, that's a perfect exactly. illustration. Yeah, exactly. It's, that's a great way to put it. And um, a lot of cities, there are a number of other cities that have taken this route as well, and we could talk about those. So it's not, New York City is not a one-off, but many cities just don't have the opportunity to do this anymore because so much of the watershed that supplies their drinking water is already developed. There's not really an opportunity. But New York seized the opportunity and decided to go the watershed protection route with great economic benefits hmm. um, as a result. Yeah. Uh, this this next chapter, uh, always timely to talk about, but this year we saw a lot of historic flooding. Uh, I, th- I think it was like five minutes in a, five months in a row or something, different U.S. communities or cities saw these 100, 500,000 year flood events, right? It's, this intense rainfall is becoming more common with climate change. Um, and so the, the title of this chapter is Make Room for Floods. Um, what's what's the, the solution there? What's the crux of that about? Yeah, well, again, you know, we know with climate change, it's basic physics, right, that, that floods are going to intensify. Um, we can anticipate that we're going to have uh, more intense floods. And so we have a choice to make in a way. Um, you know, do we keep raising the height of levees along our rivers and try to contain the flood waters within those levees? Or do we strategically bring nature into that picture and, and connect the river? Again, we're not talking about taking all the levees down and letting the river flow. We can't do that in most cases. We have towns and farmlands. But strategically reconnecting the rivers to their natural floodplain. So in some sense, it's almost kind of an eco-engineering approach. We're going to have some hard levees in place, but we're also going to have areas where, you know, the river can be a river and flood onto its floodplain. And I think more and more we're seeing the value in working with nature in this way um, and taking this nature-based approach, again, because of multiple benefits. We can not only mitigate floods this way and reduce flood risks, but also capture more carbon. Those floodplain wetlands and vegetation is going to sequester more carbon in the soil, helping us mitigate climate change. It's going to help recharge groundwater. And so you're gonna have water in place if the next year is a drought, right? 
Um, you're also going to build critical habitat for fish and birds and wildlife along that, that natural floodplain area. So again, it's the idea of multiple winds and building a more adaptive, resilient flood-based system. Um, and again, to cite an example, um, I think a good one to look at is, is the choice that Napa, California, Napa County, hmm. California made. Um, they, the Napa River flows through there, and in the early 1900s, uh, engineers do, basically straightened and deepened the channel. This is often done. Filled in many of the wetlands um, and the tidal marshes. Not an uncommon engineering approach at all. But then after 11 serious floods within 35 years, the local officials in Napa County asked the Army Corps of Engineers, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, to collaborate on what they called a uh, living river strategy that would, in a sense, do what we're just talking about, reconnect the Napa River with its historic floodplain, move some homes and businesses out of harm's way, revitalize wetlands and, and, uh, and uh, floodplain areas, and construct some levees and construct some bypass channels in strategic locations, right? So again, a mix. Residents voted in favor of, of this with a half cent increase in their local sales tax to pay their local share of the cost of this project. Um, and it's so far, I think, worked out well. The city not only got new trails and new, new birding opportunities, but it has benefited from a billion dollars in private investment that revitalized the downtown. So again, a win-win in, in many ways and a more uh, nature-based approach to flood protection that produced multiple benefits. Well, yeah, it's not just it's not just the protection from the devastating flood. Look at the actual economic benefits, uh, gains, yeah. uh, you know, having recreation areas and, and everything else that comes with it. That's a that's a really cool example. Yeah. Um, next next chapter here, we've got two more of these to go through. Um, conserve in the city. Uh, there's a lot of uh, talk about conservation, water conservation these days. So curious to hear a little bit more about this chapter. But I think conservation in many ways is sort of the unsung hero in, in water management in our urban areas. Hmm. Uh, it has helped us effectively decouple economic growth from water use. If you look at uh, Boston, for example, a city, um, you know, that obviously in, in the eastern part of the United States, the system water use in Boston is back to where it was 50 years ago. And nationwide domestic water use per capita, now this is per person, the Boston statistic was a system-wide, but per capita domestic use nationwide is down at least 20, I would say at least 18% in the last 20 years. I think we're going to get an updated figure on that from USGS pretty soon. But it's down at least 18% in the last 20 years, and it continues to fall. And this is largely due to the nation, national uh, water efficiency standards that were enacted in 1992 that required toilets, faucets, and shower heads to meet certain standards of efficiency. So if you think about it, conservation was effectively built in to new construction, homes, offices, major remodeling, new home, uh, major remodeling of homes and offices, it effectively built conservation in. 
uh, to those to those structures. Then in 2006, EPA launched its WaterSense program, which is a voluntary labeling program that basically helps consumers buy water and energy efficient appliances, in this case, water efficient appliances like dishwashers, washing machines, and so on. And the two, the water efficiency standards combined with WaterSense, has had a dramatic effect on water use nationwide in our, in our urban and suburban areas. The two together are now saving on the order of 9 billion, that's with a B, 9 billion gallons of water a day. That's, a day, wow. A day. That's, and just to put that in perspective, that's equal to nine times the water use of New York City. Wow. So nine New York City's worth of water being saved every day. So that's, that's a lot of water that's not being taken out of rivers, streams, lakes, reservoirs, aquifers that can stay in place. And, and most of us barely know that, recognize this, right? When I was a kid, it took five gallons of water to flush the toilet. Now you can't buy a toilet that, that uses more than 1.6 gallons per flush. And many use less than that, 1.23. So this is a huge benefit, right? It saved consumers money. It's been beneficial to the, to the environment. So I think the key message from this chapter for me is that, you know, conservation and efficiency measures are still the most cost-effective and environmentally sound ways of meeting new water demands, right? We've been prone to going out and looking for more supply. Well, let's see how we can do more conservation first. Yeah. There's a lot more savings we can tap um, especially outdoors, you know, we've barely begun to tap the the savings we can we can get from uh, conserving water outdoors, native mm -hmm. landscaping, and so on. Yeah, three three thoughts. Um, I I used to work at EPA EPA headquarters, and with that water sense program, I'm a massive massive fan of that. I always well, get excited. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> I always get excited when I go to the hardware store and see water sense label on stuff. You yeah. know. Um, yeah. uh, you think about all the the growth happening in in the Southwest, right? In the Colorado River Basin, and it has been interesting to see still cities like Phoenix or you know Salt Lake City or whatever it might be their water consumption Vegas even right their consumption going down. So I think that those those uh, that water efficiency stuff is part of that too. Um, and then I know a lot of those places are really incentivizing getting rid of traditional lawns outside, which, you know, use so much water and have really no place in those deserts um, and, exactly. and replacing yeah. them with native landscaping. So all good yeah. stuff. Um, all good. Last, chap last chapter I wanted to ask you about, uh, and I'm going to try not to sing the Frozen song here when I say this one, is, is Let It Flow. Um, <laughs> and so what, what, what's this here is our, our last chapter to talk about. Yeah, the... Uh the Let It Flow chapter is really making the point that one of the best and most sensible ways to restore the health and functioning of rivers is to remove unsafe and obsolete dams. Hmm. You know, there are thousands of dams across the United States that are unsafe and or obsolete. They're just not being used anymore. Think about the old textile dams in New England, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. These, these are dams that were built you know, to run mills in the 18th century, 19, early 19th century, and often they're no longer used, but they're still in place. Many are unsafe. They could 
break during a flood, many are obsolete. So what about taking them down, right? So the good news is communities around the country are beginning, not beginning, they are partnering with local, state, and federal agencies to seize these opportunities and remove these unsafe uh, dams that are no longer in use. And this has become something of a, a movement, I would say, around the country. You know, over the last three decades, more than 1,600 dams have been taken down across the U.S. Most of them are small dams, you know, these smaller uh, run-of-the-river textile-type dams and so on, uh, textile plant-type dams and so on. But some are quite large. If you think about the two dams that came down about, what, eight, seven, eight years ago, on the Elwha River in Washington state. These are quite large dams. So the removal of these dams is freeing up rivers to flow like rivers again and opening up hundreds of miles of habitat, you know, for freshwater life. And the really inspiring thing is that scientists have documented time and again that fish populations, shad, salmon, and so on, often rebound very rapidly after a dam is removed. Again, life comes back um, quite rapidly. We recently, um, just within the last month, um, heard that the, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission was agreeing to um, the taking down the, the, lower, the lower four dams on the Klamath River uh, in, in California. The Klamath is shared by Oregon and California, these four dams are in the lower Klamath, very, very important um, to the tribes in the, in the region. They played a major role in this. Um, and when those dams come down, it should open up a vast new area for, for endangered salmon and threatened salmon populations in the West. So this is a real inspiring and, again, a very much a win-win situation. Um, obsolete, unsafe dams coming down, opening up vast areas of habitat. And again, give nature, give, when we give nature a chance, we see that life comes back. And it's a very inspiring uh, set of opportunities and really being seized. The numbers I cited of 1,600 dams coming down um, are from American Rivers, a national river conservation organization that monitors this and, and keeps a database of all the dams that are coming coming down every year. So if you want to check out what's coming down where, go to the American Rivers database. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Inspiring stuff that, like you said, so much more momentum on that front too. And I think that's a little bit of a common thread uh, through all these chapters we talked about is uh, there seems to be an uptick in that transition and all in all those areas you talked about, right? Like there's more of this happening across the country, around the world, but but in the US, which is good stuff, right? We don't have to be all doom and gloom. <laughs> there are solutions uh, and they're starting to take hold. So good stuff. Well, Sandra, um, I am so glad that I finally had you on the podcast. I really enjoyed all this information. Uh, thank you for this book and for all your other work on behalf of water. Thank you very much, Travis. I've really enjoyed speaking with you and, and uh, wish you all the best as well. Thank you for this work. Thanks. Waterloo. Thank you for listening to the podcast and thank you to this episode's sponsor, Varuna. To find all episodes, sign up for email updates and connect on social media, visit waterloop.org. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop.